Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as what didn't, and we talk about it all. In this episode, we're going to discuss Chapter 8 of the 5th Edition DMG. And here with us today is a guest known online as Newbie DM, known offline as Enrique Bertrand. Hey guys, how are you? Thank you for having me on. Sam, Brandis, I'm a big uh, fan of the Additional War podcast, so I'm actually really happy to be here. Well, thank oh, you so much. Excellent. We're thank delighted you. to have you. So I am ready to chat DMG. All right, let's do it. So we're on chapter eight, which is running the game. And I usually, so <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of, it's weird because I usually say, well, what's, you know, what's the main focus of this chapter? What's the overall point of this chapter at the beginning of this? But you know, this chapter has so many different focal points that it's, it's hard to say what an overall assessment of it is. Well, there are, there are six headers uh, within table rules on the first page. So it, it, like it, it's a chapter of little nooks and crannies, right? Because there's, you get a, a header that has like an extremely practical, this is how this works rule. And then maybe it'll unfold into like theory or a persuasive essay or a bunch of variant rules. Um, this is a. This chapter should have had a a, a an image of a medieval kitchen sink. Uh, <laughs> I I do agree with that for sure. its, for its uh, art uh, in the cover of the at the start of the chapter. Right, I think it's like a kitchen sink chapter. Well, where- to to be fair, the the art at the beginning is that these uh, PCs standing in front of this like cavernous opening, but the cave hill, whatever it is itself, kind of looks like a Cthulhu face. Uh, I'm pretty so- sure that's actually Plato's cave, and they're trying to show us the platonic ideal of D and D. I don't think so. You don't think so? <laughs> no, I'm quite, quite sure that's not it. No, <laughs> or maybe it's just a cave. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say Cthulhu's mouth is like a kitchen sink, but you know, I don't know. Maybe that's not I, the way to go. What? <laughs> <laughs> it can have it can have you know multitudes in it. Is is my point? Cthulhu is is everything and everywhere. Anyway, look, I'm an English major, and I think that's stretching. Well, okay, Mister Plato's cave. <laughs> Stretching for a point is what I do professionally, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I, okay, so first section, table rules. What do you think? Uh, so th- it's it's a lot of super practical stuff of just um, real, real nitty-gritty of how does this game work in implementation levels. And, you know, that's very much the kind of thing that the DMG has been criticized for not having enough of. Um, it's just like that, that criticism is still valid. It's just, there are so many little things you would need to hit to really explain implementation of a game at the table. If you haven't seen someone else do it, if you're, if you're actually trying to communicate it in text that, I mean, it was never attainable, you know, yeah. to, to really, explain how everything would be implemented. Um, 
do we need to read 234 pages before we get to a page on table rules and table talk and die rolling? Well, that's, that was, you know, that's something that has been a running conversation in, in this series of, of episodes in that are these chapters in the right place? I, I think if you're going to argue anything to definitively be the first chapter, running the game is the one that makes sense. And I, I think that uh, online conversation strongly signals to me that this is one of the least read chapters in the whole book. Well, because it's not telling you anything too new if you're uh, if you're an old timer playing D and D, right? Not yet. And, it's not. I, I'm saying later in the chapter, things get a little uh, more unusual, and a lot of things people are saying. I have this crazy new hack for D and D. It's not a hack. It's in the DMG. It's just a variant. Well, because I think a lot of people, rules is written. I, I think a lot of people haven't read the DMG. Yep. Who, cl- right. who claim they've read the DMG? For, for sure, sure. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But you know, one of the running uh, sort of through lines of these episodes is also me asking, "What? Who is this chapter written for?" Because for some of these chapters, it's a little bit unclear, or it wavers back and forth, and some of them are are clear. There's been a sort of all options uh, in the first seven chapters, and in this chapter, the answer is, I think, to give it away. You know, usually I ask that at the end of the episode, but just to give it away, I, this chapter is for everybody because it has pieces in it that are for new DMs, and it has pieces in it for that are for sort of intermediate, mid-level DMs, and then it's got pieces in it for experienced DMs. Um, I, I think and, we start off firmly in for new DMs, the table talk, dice rolling, absolutely, and damage. It's very right. much for new folks, right? And that and that's what begs the question, though: How come this isn't the first chapter? Right. And, so, and then there's the header on rules discussions, just trying to keep rules discussions contained and outside of the like, main conversation of a session. And, well, that should be advice for new folks, but it's also advice for people whose lives were turned into gaming poison by third edition uh, rules arguments. Here I mean <laughs> me. Uh, <laughs> If if your third edition experience didn't involve that, then go with God, but mine sure did. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the metagame thinking little section with two paragraphs, I I, I kind of have two minds on it. Like I, I, I feel yeah, like I feel, you could remove it you. or you could greatly expand it, and either one would be preferable to what's in there. <laughs> well, I, I think that. Uh, I think that really the problem that we don't quite get around to saying here is that bringing your metagame thinking to the surface text of the conversation is the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing wrong with looking at a puzzle room and thinking back to the description and being like, there was a lot of extra description around this one thing, and I don't know how it fits in yet. I bet there's something there that I should go poke at. That's metagame thinking, but that's also how you solve puzzles in games a lot of the time. And so it's not wrong. Well, I guess the puzzles begs the, the age old question, who are we, who's this puzzle for the player or the PC? Right. And well, and like, that's what I, I was... I'm a big puzzle is for the player 
not puzzle is for the PC kind of, the, kind the, of person. Pu- the, the puzzle in my, this is just a personal opinion. To me, the puzzle is meant to stimulate a little bit the player at the table who's not exactly a big role player or is kind of introverted or, you know, who's not a, a boisterous role player uh, as perhaps other players at the table. So you got to give them something to do that's fun for him or her. But know. also this is touching on a stylistic thing, because if you go back to first edition, a lot of times, specifically Gary Gygax's first edition, his conception of the game, a lot of times a puzzle was specifically distinctly for the player, and it had an out-of-game answer. You know, a lot of his puzzles would reference current pop culture of the time or a current issue at the time, and the response depended upon how well read someone was or how well up with the pop culture or the current news or whatever there was. Um, And that's a very different style of play from generally speaking, what we do in fifth edition. Yeah. I would, I would not like that. But the, but the, but the thing is that I guess my point is that back in first edition metagaming was just a part of the game as well. Right. Because a lot of the puzzles, because they were, facing the players not the pcs necessarily you were expected to metagame and it was just part in in, uh, now of course i you know i'm just i can't speak for everybody but in some cases and dare i say many cases that's the way the game worked you're supposed to metagame and that's part of the reason why in those in, in first edition there was a caller because all the players could talk to each other and they could talk to each other out of character and talk about the different references that might be playing into solving this puzzle. And then the caller is the one who tells the DM, okay, here's what we do. You know, the barbarian crash crushes the door because we can't figure out the correct phrase to say or whatever. Right. Yep. And that was actually just part of, it was part and parcel with how you play the game. If you started in second edition or later, the idea of the caller is very. For sure. Well, even in first edition, even in first edition, it wasn't necessarily used by every table. I, and as I said, gotcha. I can only speak from, you know, my experience personally and and what I know of, you know, other people I know and I don't know everybody in the world. So I'm not trying to purport that that's how every single person did it, but it, it, it was a strong enough idea to be talked about in the core books at first edition. And if you ran a table with 12 players, it certainly made it a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. I think that that was probably part of why that existed, right? Because you were expected to play in groups of eight to 12 and right. that's a lot of people to manage. Uh, well, yeah. and the increasing complexity of uh, uh, character classes and, and builds and everything really pushed that all the way into no. Right. Um, right. Certainly by by third, no matter how you slice it, and and really probably by second. Well, I, I think you could probably make an argument, and we're veering really off topic with this, but I think you could probably That's make normal. you could probably make an argument that the role of the caller started dying as soon as the adventure started taking on a different form, mm-hmm. and, and and they started becoming a little bit more of a narrative affair, right? And, and almost at a pre, you know, almost on a railroad, um, over what early D and D was giving you. But that's well, my, for, for the same yeah, the same reason that that the mapper kind of went by the wayside in yeah. later in later mm-hmm. you know second edition and third edition because for sure. you didn't you didn't spend all your time in a dungeon for sure but also I mean in that you know look the basic D and D went 
the dungeon box set, right? The red box set, right? And then the wilderness was in the second set, the expert set introduced wilderness encounters. So even by then you were getting a case where you don't need a dungeon mapper in every case and you don't necessarily need a caller. And anyway, yeah, we're way off track. By the way, that's just how Brandis and I roll. So it's <laughs> just what happens. But but going back to this chapter, you know, before we started recording, I told you guys that I thought that this DMG was a well laid out DMG. Mm-hmm. And and for the most part, I still think that it is given, you know, the chapters I, I feel include what they need to include. But I, I'm almost thinking that maybe if I were to read this book uh, from scratch as, as a new player, I might read this from back to front. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And start and start with the section on running the game and and the workshop and work my way forward. Um, yeah, I think that there's <laughs> really interesting things to be gotten out of chapter nine if that's where you started. Mm-hmm. Though a lot of stuff isn't contextualized for you yet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, unless you've I, actually read the player's handbook, in which case you probably do get it. Y- you're right, but I think there's probably more in chapters eight and nine for a for a new DM than there are in chapters one and two. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, like, uh, I think that we sort of have to conclude that the re- the reasoning behind putting chapter one uh, first, like, like the the world building chapter that's there, is to suck in people who love world building but aren't sure about DMing yet, mm-hmm. and to hope that in every group of friends there's one person who secretly uh, is in love with world building and will, uh, you know, become that forever DM uh, and perpetuate the ways of our people. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I, I'll bring this up again uh, in a later <laughs> section uh, because there's a section in a two or three pages where I want to really talk about the audience for the thing, but let's move on in any case. Um, um Anything else? So, well, I wanted to touch on um, the missing players, small groups stuff, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, so, so missing players really comes to be a lot like the discussion of how to run a sidekick, because right. the person who isn't there is just the sidekick for the session. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've seen a bunch of discussion in, in this book already around how to run NPCs. Uh, it was way back in um, chapter four. Uh, we did 20 minutes on it with uh, Colin and Rabbit um, because the rules were strangely wishy-washy. And so uh, certainly with this here, it looks a lot more like you, you just wasted, wasted some text there, eh? Um, because it's going to get much more direct about, well, these are things you can do. Here's some of the trade-offs of doing it um, for, for adding in extra characters. You know, maybe they use the sidekick class and maybe they don't. Right. Yeah. I mean, I didn't find this section, especially insightful. Um, but, you know, trying to look at it from a, if, if I was a new DM, if I had never DM'd before, I'd only DM'd a couple of sessions and I wasn't, you know, maybe I hadn't even thought about this issue, right? Maybe I just assumed, oh, well, if everybody doesn't show up, we cancel, right? Like this would kind of be a nice thing to have. But I, you know, as an experienced DM, I didn't find it all that 
elusive. Oh, sure, sure. I, I definitely recognize this as not yeah. being, you know, text for me. Um, I mean, they're they're kind of like the section is kind of like common sense solutions for what to do. I mean, there, there's really not too many choices. You either play or you don't play, and if you play, it's going to be one of these four things, right? Someone's going to run the character. I'm going to run the character. The character's going to disappear, or or. Yeah, and if they disappear, there's two ways to do it. Either they're kind of poof, not there, they had a reason nope. to leave, or they're there, but they're kind of in the shadows and they're they don't ghost. really have an effect. Yeah. Which is what so, we do in my game, by the way. In my game, they just sort of fade into the background. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, in my game, the like party roster is always changing up because there's a huge stable of players and characters. And so that person just doesn't go on that adventure. And if it's the middle of the adventure, we probably reschedule. Or if we don't reschedule, then somebody just runs them in combat. But mm. most of the week, well, we actually, don't schedule that. What you're bringing up to me is one of those things where you know the person writing this chapter or editing this chapter wasn't the same person who edited or wrote some of the other chapters because they talk about don't they talk about a troop style or West Marches style game? And this would be the perfect place to say, you know, some game styles, you know, if you, if you happen to have a, a group that has people that are frequently absent, here's, you know, refer to chapter, whatever it was, four or five, whatever it was, uh, and maybe think about having that style of campaign. I feel like maybe we talked about troop style play, but the book is it not in here. Uh, I don't think it's in here. D and D is not typically, uh, use those words. Yeah, I mean, I know, but I, yeah. Um, um, yeah. I think it's interesting that they have something that is almost framed as a rule for new players coming in. Um, the player creates a character of a level equal to the lowest level member of the party, uh, which presupposes in itself characters of varying levels, which is certainly not a given. Um, ah, and then they, they reference that again later in this chapter, which was yep. something I was going to bring up. So. Yep. Um, and then uh, if the player is completely unfamiliar with D&D, have the player start a first level character. Uh, if the rest of the party is significantly higher in level, consider taking a short break from the campaign and having everyone play a first level character for a few sessions while the new player learns the ropes. That's, that is certainly all stuff you can do. That's, it's hard. Um, but I, I feel like try to start them at about third or fourth level if the party is you know more than about fifth or sixth level, and just be prepared for a lot of handholding is maybe better advice. Well, take that rule and combine it with the encounter building uh, rules, and you have yourself quite a quite a quagmire. <laughs> My brain hurts. <laughs> quite, like, quite a quagmire. Like I've had. Uh, sessions where players were as much as five or six levels apart and things can still work better than you'd expect. Um, but yeah, it's, it's tricky. Um, like there was a, a time that the PCs were going into a major showdown and we had a, a new player who could finally join us after you know, us having hope that you could come play for a while. And uh, this like fourth level cleric wound up having the light spells that 
no one else had ready, and <laughs> uh, the sacred flame that disrupted the in- greater invisibility on the assassin that <laughs> really turned the foot tide of that fight. Like it, it's it's a sacred flame cast by a fourth level character. That is nothing. But if you blow your concentration save, I mean, <laughs> who cares? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I just again I, I don't know if this is stuff that belongs in the back of the book right uh, right like I, I think we I have to kind of say this chapter could have gone earlier and that may have helped more people spot it instead of just treating it as Oh, I don't need to read this. Let, or let maybe me, not. Like, let, let me ask you a question. Maybe you guys have thought about this. What do you think is the point in the, the, the part of this book where people start tuning out of the book and don't finish the book? So, so, so real I talk, I think that having I, world building first is the problem. I, I well, think that people think they don't need that, and so they tune it out. So I, I think that um, the assumption is erroneous. I think the assumption that somebody's going to start reading this at page one and read as much as they can till they tune out is a, an erroneous assumption. I think people are going to use this like a reference manual and read parts of whatever it is that they either need to know based on the table of contents or what they look up in the index. And that's what's going to lead them. You know, I know some people will get the book and flip through it and some people will start reading and they'll probably, you know, read chapter one and then they'll flip around and they want to know the hard and fast rules and the variants and they'll flip back here to chapter eight, and nine, but they're not going to necessarily read every single word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, that's a good point. I, so I can't really say when somebody tunes out. I think that um, perhaps a preface needs to be put in the DMG that says, this is a reference work. It's for you to reference while you're prepping and planning and running your game, but it's a good idea to read it through at least once. I mean, the the header in the introduction does say how to use this book. Does it? I yep. don't remember. It's been so part, many episodes Part three, ago. Master of Rules. <laughs> we could add Sam to the list of people who haven't read the DMG. Oh, burn! <laughs> Ouch. So I do think that once you get to the roll of dice and the rolling with it, ignoring the dice and middle path sections, like that is something that I have seen experienced DMs discuss on Twitter within the last 72 hours. Right. Ad nauseum. Right. Like they, it, it showcased for me that they hadn't read this section mm-hmm. because they were each convinced of the kind of, no, I have the right way. And you just haven't thought about why I would want to do it this way kind of mode. Right. right. I, I don't think it was any of the three of us. So I'm, uh, if, if it was, uh, sorry, y'all. <laughs> it wasn't, but, but I, um, I will say also that to, to, to that point, I've seen it discussed ad nauseum guys guys i've got a player who's really important is going to miss this session but everybody still wants to yep. play what do i do yep so that's an you know that it, just you know it, these uh, are on, conversations that that happen all the time yeah i mean there's only a thread about that uh in the big facebook group on days that end in y right <laughs> exactly and same with dice and same with 
you know, when they get to the talk part where they talk about fudging dice and when they get to the part when they talk about, you know, automatic success and, you know, variant skill checks, you know, attributes and yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, it's just all kinds of, you could do this crazy thing. It's it's literally in the book. That's not Mm -hmm. a hack. You just, (laughs) just read it. Like, So much of it comes down to the conversations of people saying, no, you shouldn't use D&D for this because you're having to change D&D to do that. Well, you're not changing D&D if they literally wrote it in the book. Right. Is is how I feel about that. Um, personally, like, I would characterize my approach as the middle path on the roll of dice. Um, though I think that... Uh, there's a lot of good fun to be had, especially really early in a campaign, leaning really, really hard on dice uh, and using their results to help people uh, give more stuff to react to, to help them find their character. Um, mm-hmm. I was listening to Exandria Unlimited, and I feel like what I'm hearing is uh, Abria Iyengar really, really leaning into rolling with it, just dice for everything. And it it both creates a lot of comedy because extreme strange things happen. Um, and also like uh, gets people sort of loosened up and moving more in, in conversation. Um, I feel like it's helping them sort of laugh and get comfortable with the characters. And I like that. I'd say I'm uh, when I run other older editions, I'm more an ignoring the dice kind of guy. But when I roll, when I play fifth edition, when I'm running fifth edition, I'm between the middle path and rolling with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, From listening to D and D brief, I think that that tracks. Yeah. I would probably declare myself a middle path. I mean, just things that I don't, but, but the other side of that coin is that my players like rolling dice and they'll ask to roll anything and everything if they could, which can be exhausting as a DM because it's like, guys, you don't have to roll for this. You get open a chest. <laughs> No, 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 but I want to check if it's trapped. It's not trapped. I'm telling you it's not trapped. I'm not going to try to – I'm not tricking you. It, it is – this door is not trapped. You could open the door. It's okay. You yeah, can I hadn't really thought about how player paranoia would oh, yeah. intersect with yeah. that. So I, my two my two teenage players, they love rolling dice, and they want to roll for everything. And half the time, they'll roll the die, and then I'll be like, what are you rolling – Mm-hmm. D24. Well, I wanted to do this. And I had to sort of train them, do not roll a die and expect me to accept that result of that die roll unless I ask you to roll a die based on what you're saying your character's doing. But ultimately they love rolling dice. So I with them, I I'm full on roll with it. I'm full on everything they want to do. They roll a die, even if there's no consequences for failure, because sometimes they'll roll like a four and I still let them succeed. 
and that still keeps in the ambiguity of how dangerous or important a particular given role is. So it still keeps some of the mystery into it. And they just they just love throwing their dice around. Did, did you find yourself rolling more dice or asking for more rolls as a DM when you were running third edition? Um, so I never ran very much third edition. I've only run probably five, six sessions of third edition. So, so thinking about it, I could definitely say that I called for far fewer roles in second because there was no unified skill system. Um, in third, um, I probably did call for more roles overall. Uh, I mean, to say nothing of the fact that uh, spot and listen and hide and move silently were differentiated skills. So it, like a single stealth check is two roles get wrecked what a mess um so in that regard it was obviously calling for more roles but newbie hard for me to recall for sure so so newbie so your name is newbie dm but i know for a fact that that you're not really a newbie dm maybe maybe we should have started with this but do you want to give a tiny brief little synopsis of your dming experience or your or your playing experience as well no my my dming experience and my playing experience are are very different so i so i started dming fourth edition back in 2008 that was really when i started dming i I tried dming uh third edition when it when it came out and i didn't like third edition so i didn't play it or dm it um but my playing experience goes back to first edition D&D. Like uh, early, uh, when I was in high school, we played 1E, and then we moved into 2E, and, and I skipped over 3E for the most part and went back to 4E. So I've played a lot of D&D over the past 30 years, Not, but I haven't DM'd a lot. I've only been DMing since 2008 or so, which I guess by now, I keep forgetting we're in 2021. Yeah, that's uh- <laughs> <laughs> and and also that's over two editions. So yeah, now <laughs> I, I keep forgetting. Like I keep thinking that we just started, you know, Twitter. This whole thing just started, but we've been at this for a decade already. So, yeah. so I guess yeah, I have been DMing for a long time. <laughs> it feels like 2009, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it feels like it was yesterday when we we're you know getting this whole thing started. And yeah. so I mean, D and D fifth edition came out in July, I believe, of 2014. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 so long ago. <laughs> it's a long yeah. time ago. <laughs> What's happening? Fifth edition uh, is not new. Fifth edition is a yeah. veteran, a veteran edition already. It's, right. uh, yeah, it's it's already got yeah. th- three years of duration on fourth edition. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but 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 I did uh, try. I, I did try to DM third edition. Um, I played oh, yeah. it. A f- I played it a few times. Uh, my friends were really into it, but at, w- when third edition came out, I was sort of starting my my career and getting married and that sort of thing. So I, you know, I had other priorities at the time. Um, so I didn't really give it too much of a of a chance, really. Yeah, yeah. I I ended up I played basic and original, and then I played first edition and then second edition, and I I was playing a lot of other games at that time too. Um, and then when third edition came out, I, my life was just sort of like what you're saying. I, I, I was going back to school. I was doing all these different things. I didn't have time to mess with third edition. So I just never got into it. And then about 2006, I decided I want to get back into D&D. And I went to the store and I looked at the shelves and, you know, third edition had like, you know, 
a bazillion hardback books. And I looked at it and I was like, nope, not happening. Because I had also, you know, I'd also done my research and I learned that third edition really depends upon system mastery. And so if you have a really good system mastery, you can run the game pretty well and pretty easily and you can play the game pretty well and pretty easily. And it's a great deal of fun. And I looked at a shelf with like 32 books on it that were all different. (laughs) And I was like, not happening. It's not happened. So I actually, I went and did other things. I played some basic D&D. I played some first edition again. And then when fourth edition came out that I got back into fourth edition, I did eventually end up running some third edition. I ran a short, like five or six session arc and a couple of one shots. Uh, but, and I ran a Pathfinder, a couple of sessions of Pathfinder. And I even ran Pathfinder second edition uh, for two or three sessions. But um, so I'm, I'm sort of familiar with the third edition flavor. It's just not a, a system that I ever played extensively like I have every other edition of D&D. No. So it's hard to answer your question. I, I don't know if I called – I didn't play it enough times to know if I called for rules. Well, the, the reason I asked is because characters were so granular, right? You had like 25 skills and you had ranks, ranks in each skill. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, so there was, a, there was a lot of character – a lot of character building, the, the character mm-hmm. creation – was meant for you to use those skills and, and roll dice, really. Like right. it, it, it really, it, it, what's the word, encouraged that type of play. Right. So that's why I asked if, if, if you found yourselves yeah. um, rolling more dice or asking for more rolls, because I think players would expect you to. Well, and the thing is, third edition played, because, because it was so, it relied on system mastery. If, you're, if your player made a PC with 16 ranks in a particular skill, Either, number one, they're scared that not having those ranks is going to lead to their death from something stupid, or they want to be able to utilize that skill in the game. And if you're dealing with either one of those situations, they're going to be rolling dice to make it worthwhile to put in all those skill points into the getting all those ranks. Right? Well, and, and with some skills, ride springs to mind, mm-hmm. uh, you're investing ranks to push failure off the table right. because the highest DC you care about hitting reliably is low is knowable and fairly low. Right. Just, just pushing. I can't fail a DC 10 ride check off the table mm-hmm. is a good use of a skill point. Right. 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 And it doesn't like, it's not, you're not doing it in one or two skill points, mm-hmm. but you don't buy more than you need for that typically. But anyway, now we're way off track. <laughs> Wild. Again, typical. So, uh, okay. So, using ability scores. scores. Yeah. So, using ability scores. Um, I mean, this is uh, on its face. This is pretty close to what's in the player's handbook, um, and so it, it does us the favor of covering the kind of judgment calls around retrying failed ability checks, mm-hmm. um, and. You know, it grants that there are times when retry doesn't make any sense. Um, and sometimes I feel strange about the fact that there are some ability checks where just categorically for that ability check, uh, a failure is, I make no progress. And some is, my situation gets materially worse by having failed. Mm-hmm. Some of them behave more like saving throws in a way, like perception springs to mind. Perception often behaves more like a saving throw where you're trying to avoid something get worse, getting worse rather than 
improve your situation necessarily. I, I mean, ability scores are such a sacred cow of D&D, right? That th- this is one of those chapters where you you have to, th- this chapter has to get it right, right? Because, I mean, this is one of the fundamental parts of the game of what makes D&D D&D, really. Like you expect a guy, to, 18 charisma is such a pop culture thing, whether you play D&D or not, that, and and then, well, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I completely lost my train of thought where I was going with that. Um, no, I mean, you can't, you can't do away with D&D's ability scores. Like this spread of six is absolutely a, a a pop culture understanding in the same way that the ninefold alignment chart is. Yeah. Right. Like people who've never uh, cracked a book still see alignment charts on Twitter and know what to do. You know what I wish was in this, in this section of ability scores. And, and this is something, this is something I, I wish were a little more codified in the rules and not left up to DM interpretation. And a lot of people may not agree with me on this, but this is something I would find useful. I wish there were more, there was more emphasis placed on how long time, how much things take to do, how long some things take to do. Right. Um, like how long does it take to typically pick a lock? Correct. What if it's a masterwork lock? Correct. What if it's yeah. really damp in there? What if, what if they don't have thieves tools? What if, yeah. Exactly. And that's one of those things where I think the idea of the three pillars of, of play where the exploration pillar doesn't get as much uh, as much love and as much uh, care as the combat pillar gets. I I agree with that. I, I saw your uh, your thing about uh, five so five ten fifteen as uh, exploration timing. I think that has a lot of legs. Um, but you know, as a broader case of what you're talking about, like they. They really try to stay um, like very ten thousand foot view on ability scores and and ability checks and what an individual check means, because the alternative is get, is drilling so far down into well this task is always DC ten and this task is always DC fifteen and so on, or here's a table of of modifiers that you wind up needing to crack a book every single time. You're going to roll an ability check. Yeah, but but I could see where unbearable. they could do this, where instead of giving a table with an actual DC, they could say, okay, uh, typical, you know, generic lock is going to be uh, standard easy, right? Like it's basically going to be easy, but given these circumstances, right? Like, uh, okay, well now if it's a masterwork lock, it could step it one grade harder, Right. So now it's a moderate check. And if the, if the, if they're trying to do it quickly, it might step it one more step harder. So now it's a hard check. Right. And everything basically starts off as easy because they say as much in here that, you know, if you've decided, it's even says, if you've decided that an ability check is called for, then most likely the task at hand isn't a very easy one. That is, everybody basically can roll a five. So you're not even rolling that one. So if you just start it with a baseline of easy being 10, and then you provide a table with, here's some examples of things that could affect that difficulty, right? And then you're not actually putting numbers on it, maybe other than that you're starting with a 10, right? Like, so more than any other skill, I will say, I wish that 
medicine had gotten a mm. breakdown of mm-hmm. things you can definitely positively accomplish with right. a check because whoa, that skill. <laughs> yeah. I, I like the, um, you know, that they, they point out the variant in here or whatever, if they even call it a variant, where you can use a different attribute for a particular skill. I do that all the time. It always throws my players off <laughs> um, because they're like, wait, uh, 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 strength, you know, a strength. Do you want a strength arcana check or whatever, you know? And it's like, yes, yes, I do. Because things happen in the world that are different from the typical, right? Uh, yeah, and I, I really love that kind of thing. Um, and it's something that I especially adore in World of Darkness games, where mm-hmm. you can get unusual pairings of uh, attribute and skill. Um, right. It bugs me in 5e because uh, outside of the jack-of-all-trades feature or the... Uh, expertise feature proficiency is yes or no it's a single value and so like you're using a different uh, ability score but Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like enough of a transformation to me yeah yeah Um, i hear you yeah because like maybe it's a point or two higher or lower but yeah um but like the one that I was thinking about today as I was looking over this is that I'm always going to wish that at minimum religion and nature had uh, wisdom as an alternative, alternate ability score standard instead of defaulting to intelligence because clerics and druids hate that crap. Right? Like it, that, that, that's always going to rankle a little bit. Yeah, because you you end up with a cleric that that knows nothing about religion, <laughs> right? Well, like I've, I've had multiple clerics and druids take the sage background, and that background loses a lot of its excitement if int isn't your primary, and that doesn't feel right. It feels like maybe one of the features of sage or cleric or druid somewhere should just be. When you are asked to roll an intelligence uh, check, mm-hmm. if it's one of these sets of skills, you can roll wisdom instead. Right. Have fun. And see, but here's where I feel like this is easily th- – this is where the roll with it versus ignore the dice versus middle path counts, right? Because if you have a cleric in your game who you know has a really average int, but they would know something about the religion – that's when you don't ask for a role. You just say to the character, you know from your training in the temple that this is a symbol of whatever. Right, for sure. And that works really well until you're in a skill challenge situation. Absolutely. Yeah, right? I, I, and yeah then absolutely. It just melts. Yeah. And that's, but, that's not. And I guess what I'm getting at is that would be a place where more more advice could be used in this session in this section right about that about how skills proficiency and difficulty class intersects with how you choose to use the dice in your game i i just feel like it's a little too 
open for interpretation, and I, I'm not asking for the game to to put on in a rule everything because I, I, I you know I wouldn't enjoy that either. But I think there are some things that you could definitely, especially if you're a new DM, you could use some guidance on. And and I think your lock example was a, a perfect example, right? You know, and and does this mean that every single chest that you find in a temp, uh, in a dungeon is the same type of lock or is the same type of chest? Or you know, once I open a DC ten chest, um, can I expect most chests to be DC ten? Or or what makes a chest a DC ten versus a DC fifteen or even a DC twenty or twenty five? I don't know. I feel like there's there's room here to explain things a little more and to put things a little more into into context than what the game does. Same thing with the tools. I think the tools section is a little, and sometimes I still like find myself seven years later still saying, wait, can you pick a lock without a lock picks? How does that work? I got to go back and check. Like there's some things that I find are a little too, too vague. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Especially if you're new, especially if you're a new player and you well, you DM. well, and then you do get that very drilled down, um, like set of tables of DCs and what you can do with them, just for tools in Xanathar's, and it was weird to have it broken out only for tools and not even like a similar expansion of guidance for everything else. Yeah, in fact, I used that that part of Xanathar is pretty extensively in my D and D brief campaign because it mattered whether they had cartographer school uh, tools and whether they, you know, all that sort of thing, because they were trying to map what they were doing because they realized that the maps they had were completely wrong. So I used, you know, I reviewed that information before those few sessions where that was really important and it was very helpful, but I agree that it would be nice if that had been accompanied with, you know, here's the general skills, and now let's talk about, you know, how you could adjudicate that, right? Um, I think basically what it comes down to is they really want the very next part of this, advantage and disadvantage, to be doing most of the work, right? Like, they want you to always defer to advantage and disadvantage. So if you're not sure, okay, well, that's a lock, it's going to take 15 to pick it, Uh, but if you're taking your time, you can just roll with advantage, right? That seems to be just from reading this, the kind of way that they are asking DMs to adjudicate this sort of thing. In other words, if you're not sure, just either add advantage or disadvantage, give the player advantage or disadvantage, and that'll solve the issue of whether you have to fiddle with the DC, just, you know, standard DC is either 10 or 15 or 20 if you think it's really hard. And then advantage and disadvantage will solve any other question that you have regarding that element. Yep. Though there is also a rule under uh, multiple ability checks on the previous page that says uh, to speed things up, assume that a character spending 10 times the normal amount of time needed to complete a task automatically succeeds at that task. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. I mean, you want to talk about. A rule that implicitly means you need to understand time tracking and create mm-hmm. time pressure. Right. Well, there you go. Like, like there's no right. tension in roles if there's no tension in time. Right. Right. For uh, sure. Is what that's implicitly saying to me. 
and how does and how does time and how does time affect exploration in other ways? And and I don't think the game gets into that too much. Well, and that's what I was going to say is it it it, it is implicitly says it to you, Brandis, because you have a lot of experience. But if a new DM was reading this, would they actually get how important that is? Not from this section, I don't think. No, I agree. I I think that. Uh, reading between the lines to see what th- that's what that means is, mm-hmm. you know, frankly, our jobs as commentators, right, right, uh, sure. not something that, you know, an uninitiated reader should should see. So, do we want to move on to the next section? Uh, I, I, I wanted to touch on um, very automatic success really quick, um, just because uh, this is another thing that I, I saw like touted as a hack. Uh, about 72 hours ago on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> n- not even kidding. Um, but it was um, like if a character has proficiency, treat uh, DC 10 you know, easy checks as auto pass. And there's a, there's a good argument for not doing that, mm-hmm. which uh, was cited in thread as uh, the ranger problem. Um the ranger problem being I'm so good at this that it no longer comes up. It's just completely skated Mm -hmm. over. And so my moment of shining just doesn't happen. And that's not great. That that doesn't feel very good. I'm so good at this thing that it's no longer even in the universe for me to dominate. Well, 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 like if you're, if you're great enough at um, like foraging for food, Mm -hmm. then even tracking food is gone. Right. Yeah. Because no, you, you can't yeah. roll badly and have a bad day and start to run out of food. And like, I get, I get that D and D isn't thinking of itself as that kind of uh, tense hex crawler, but it's a shame. Right. Well, the other problem with that is, so that's, that's the problem with the exploration pillar that the newbie has bringing up as well. But the other problem with that is if the DM decides to interject a little bit of difficulty, it's as if they're stepping on that ranger's ability now. Like, well, why does the ranger even have that ability then? Because the DM is saying, no, no, this is more difficult because of whatever. And now you have to do right. So, so then it's, then it feels like the DM's taking something away from that character that that player specifically created to be good at that thing. Right. So it's all, it's almost like a catch 22, right? You're between a rock and a hard place. If you, if you don't make it hard enough for that skill to, or that, that event, that character to shine during that event, you've taken away the ability for them to shine at doing something they're really supposed to be really good at doing. But if you make it too hard, they feel like you're penalizing them for being good at something. It's a problem. It is. I agree with you, Sam. I mean, it, it, it's it's tough stuff. I yeah. yeah. I do find I, it hilarious that somebody was just touting that that was their that was something new. <laughs> it's right it, well, here. Yeah, like I was. It it led to me sort of poking through this chapter and realizing, wow, there's a lot of stuff here that mm-hmm. um, people say isn't in D and D, and oh dear, um, <laughs> it, it sure is. And like uh, the, the one that the, the section that really 
drove this home is still coming up. I don't want to, you know, jump the gun there, but mm-hmm. we're, we're getting to it pretty soon. Um, anyway, uh, New- newbie, you were going to say something. I cut you off. I think. No, I was going to say that the advantage and disadvantage mechanic in general to me is 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 a pretty darn good mechanic overall. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it's one of those things that I think there's so many different ways you could use it and and interpret it and 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 justify it and it's just such an easy and elegant solution to to all the fiddly bonuses that I, I can't imagine playing D D without it anymore. I think it's mm-hmm. it's one of those things that it's new, but it's 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 here to stay. I think I, I agree with that. Uh, I have I have exactly one quibble with advantage and disadvantage as a thing. Um, and that is that sometimes something grants, uh, grants advantage or imposes disadvantage when what it needs to do is force a reroll or allow a reroll. Um, and sometimes, uh, rarely, a reroll comes up in, where it should be advantage or disadvantage instead. Mm. Hmm. Um, Interesting, yeah. And that just has to do with um, how much information you have at the time that you decide to use the thing that grants advantage or disadvantage. Um, it's specifically inspiration. Inspiration needs to be a reroll, not advantage or disadvantage. And I'll be honest, I think that's that's the way a lot of people use it, right? Is That's that's why it needs to be that, yeah. Right. They roll it and then they didn't succeed. They're like, who can I spend my inspiration to roll that again because I want advantage? And, right. and the answer is technically no. Technically that no. that feels horrible. Yeah, that feels like crap, yes. <laughs> Yes. And so they just don't they just forget it about it as a tool because it doesn't yeah. do the most logical thing. Right. Um no, I, I agree advantage and disadvantage is a really elegant, very quick and simple and fun response to the plus two minus two minutiae and the mm-hmm. does it stack or does it not stack questions that you would get from all the different feats and abilities and all that stuff from third edition and, and from fourth edition too a little bit. Um and I, I like the solution um, because the solution is so simple. Okay, well, if something gives advantage and then some other circumstance gives disadvantage, you don't even have to worry about if there are any others out there because all of them are just canceled. You're rolling regular. Like that is such a simple solution, but I know that some people treat that like uh, – you know, they're uh, cutting it down with an axe instead of a scalpel, right? Like that they want the granularity. And so advantage, disadvantage does not give the granularity of, you know, because, you know, I've had people say, well, I've got five things in this situation that could give me advantage and only one thing that gives me disadvantage. Yep. And basically one disadvantage then completely outweighs all five advantages and I roll even. Yep. And I, I know some people don't like that. Uh, and that really bugged me at first. And then I kind of learned to relax and roll with it. Mm-hmm. And the the good side of that, the advantage of advantage, uh, <laughs> is that uh, you don't worry about stacking stuff up as much. You just right. get your one advantage and you move on with you, your life. You literally ignore any other thing. Right, right. And the reason I say it's fun, it's a fun mechanic, is everybody loves rolling 2d20. It oh, was yeah. the reason why so many people played Avengers in fourth edition, because well, if you had the right that, circumstances, you got to roll two d twenty, and it was awesome. <laughs> that and there was this game by Ubisoft that was really super good, also. 
It's, it's about assassins with a creed. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> until they sponsor us, we're not going to talk about them. <laughs> Fair. I'm reading the inspiration section. Mm-hmm. And there's one part that's, that stands out that I find uh, kind of funny. It says, um, some DMs forgo using inspiration while others embrace it as a key part of the game. Uh, when this DMG was written, inspiration was not a thing in D and D. It didn't. It did not exist. <laughs> I, I think they have to have been talking about. So who, are you ta- who are you talking about? Yeah. Who are you talking about here? <laughs> uh, let, let's let's see. Uh, we go to the um, playtesting provided by over right. seventy-five thousand fans of D and D. Additional feedback provided by uh, okay. our, our guest in Chapter Six, Teo Sabadia. All right, good. Yep. Sure. <laughs> um, inspiration is one of those things where I, I I will cop to the fact that I never use it. I always forget to give it. My players always forget to ask for it, and it's not a part of our game, for better or worse. Yeah. I don't think we're missing anything out in our D&D game by not having inspiration be a part of it. It, it feels kind of tacked on to me, and it doesn't feel like like it's, it's neither here nor there for me. Whatever. I basically agree with all of that, and I, I kind of want to not like reflexively, but yeah, no, like I have, I have whole campaigns where I remember to use it and then whole campaigns where I don't. And it's pretty value neutral. Like, but because in one, I'm spending time and mental energy remembering someone's um, ideals, bonds and flaws. And then they get, uh, a re-roll for one roll or whatever, or I have to explain, well, it's an advantage, but I'm not going to, th- I'm not going to charge you if you don't benefit from it because that also is terrible. Right. You know, I, I, I also don't use it and I've tried various different things through various different campaigns for years uh, to try to remind myself to use it or to try to be better and, and sort of learn how to integrate it into my game. And it's just not, really a part of my game. Um, there is one game where I'm actually a player, I'm not running it, where the DM just says, at the beginning of every session, you have one point of inspiration. You can use it yourself or you can give it to somebody else. Once it's gone, it's gone. And you don't have to do anything special. There's no sort of overhead. There's no bookkeeping. There's no, it's the easiest way. And even with that, I still don't even do that. Like I just, it's just not a part of my D&D makeup. You know what? I, at the beginning um, one of the concerns I had was, well, so here's here's one of the reasons why I, I don't really lean on it, is that I, ideals, bonds, and flaws are the beginning, the thing that you decide at the beginning of the character. And usually when I run a campaign, it's not contingent upon, it's not based upon those PCs, ideals, bonds, and flaws, right? It's based on other things, other storylines, other things. And those PCs might have a background story that integrates into the campaign, but it usually doesn't go to the level of a very specific ideal bond or flaw, the way that they're written in the background section of the PHB. And honestly, I don't want the overhead of having to have written those all down and memorize them all and try to, you know, encourage the players to, oh, that's, that's your flaw. Okay. I'm going to give you an inspiration because you picked on that, this game or something like that's just not how I run a game. I think that, I, I, I think that, that, 
that mechanic, if you look at fate, and I'm going to step out here and look at the at the fate mm-hmm. game real quick. Yep. If you look at fate and how mm-hmm. fate works when right. you invoke an aspect, yep. and, and you automatically gain a benefit by invoking your aspect, right? You got a plus two to your role. Um, that makes it player facing. Mm-hmm. And that puts the onus on the player to invoke the aspect and remember, and he gets the bonus or she gets a bonus. They get the bonus. But here we're being asked to remember the, 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 the player's trait that, that keys the, the, the inspiration. It's like, no, this is, this is, there's something here that's not working right. And, and I think if it were, if it were, if this mechanic were done better, I think more people would use it. And I think part of why people forget it, and the three of us here are saying openly, we don't use it. It's because it's not that good. Uh, right. I will say that in fate games I have played, uh, the GM remembering to engage with the distribution of fate points as part of the fate point economy has been exactly as bad of a problem as inspiration in the indie <laughs> games I've played. And uh, fate falls over and dies when that happens. Like you just aren't playing fate anymore. So that's a problem. You know, and I, and I'll say this, uh, you know, the Numenera game has uh, a thing where you can um, spend XP to counter a GM intrusion, or if you're doing a GM intrusion, you, you can offer them an XP for them to allow you to intrude uh, and change the circumstances, or they can pay you to have you not intrude. Right. Um, And and that was really hard to get used to running Numenera. But, uh, you know, I had to talk to the players and say, okay, we're not playing D&D. This is very, very different because nobody wants to spend their XP, right? Because when you when you have the mindset of XP is really important, I need to keep it so I can level up and improve myself. You don't want to spend that XP on a reroll. Like that just sounds very shallow to spend XP on a reroll. But the way Numenera works it actually works. And if you get into it and you make it work, it will work. And I'm going to say the same thing about fate. Like when I was playing fate, you have to really all agree and work together that you're not playing D and D you're playing fate and you have to start dealing with the aspects, but that's really hard. That's a big ask. That's a really hard thing to do. If the player's, you know, if you're doing like a one shot or a two shot or something, it's really hard to change that mindset. And I think that's the same problem that inspiration here has is that if you already play D and D or you, even if you're new to fifth edition, you're new to D and D and fifth edition, but you have a DM who never uses inspiration. If that's just not built into how you play the game, it's really hard to integrate that in. Yeah. Yeah. And to be fair, they do provide the variant of players giving inspiration, right? Like basically everybody starts with an inspiration they can give to someone else and they could do it for a variety of reasons, creative play or funny role playing or creating a good, you know, moment or whatever. And that's fine too. Um, But even in the example, it basically tells the DM, well, you also have to make sure that it stays fair. So, so basically you're still going to be tracking this thing. And I don't know. Well, and you know, while we're listing problems with inspiration, which I guess is the thing we're doing now, uh, <laughs> the idea that you can only have one at a time is mm-hmm. kind of awful. And don't get me wrong. I think the idea on its face sounds really good. I think it sounds like a way to bring in some of the good things about other games that are not D&D into d and I just think that 
as newbie said earlier, it feels more tacked on because I, I don't think it's really it be just because it's not integrated into the DNA of D and D it's, it's going to feel tacked on. Yeah. Um, it doesn't intersect with many other rules. The other places it does intersect with are real strange. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's that one downtime action that we found in chapter six. Oh, right. Like, yes. Sure. That, yeah. That's it. Uh, it was, um, there's also like religious services. Yeah. Yeah. Like what's happening, yeah. but okay, sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, was, very, it, was, very was it kind of a mess. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I think that a lot of what happened in the design was just, um, we want to do something like this, but we don't want to, like scare off the the old school fans that we we're trying to draw back to fifth edition, and uh, we don't want to like turn it into something that you are ripping the guts out of the game if you don't use. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really want people who've been playing D anD D for a long time to feel completely comfortable continuing to play D anD D and not have to change their whole mindset. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I... And whether that's right or wrong, I think that's what they're doing. Yeah, I think so, too. I feel like it, they would have it would have been better for them to bring in something like a hero point. Well, I think that... Like an action an action point from 4th edition, right? Right. The 4th edition action point is so much stronger of a pitch because 4th edition action points wind up being both an amazing thing right now and then also some of your level up advancements, especially from your, your Paragon Path. Uh, you also get a, a Paragon Path feature and maybe also an Epic Destiny feature, I forget, that juices that further. Now, the exact the exact way it works would be a pain in the butt in 5th. Right, right, right. But, but you could just say it's an action point, and in 5th edition, an action point or a hero point or whatever you want to call it, because I think hero points are from 3rd edition Eberron, right? But anyway, you For could sure. just say, this gives you an extra action. You can either you yep. can either move or you can do a, you know whatever you and whatever action you want to do, right? Yeah. You could do whatever action you want to do. It gives you an extra action, or you yep. could use it as a reroll. There you go, fixed. So anyway. <laughs> no, I, I I agree with you. Um, I, I'm reading the, the downtime religion thing, and that's 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 really bizarre. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> that you you get a two d six worth of days an inspiration at the start of the day and you can only have one. So, so wait, is it one? Now I forgot. Is it one per group or one per player? It's one per, one per, per player. One per player. Right? Yeah. One per player. Right. But you could basically spam the religious ritual thing and give yourself inspiration every day. Right. Kind of. Yeah. But, but it's only so helpful since if you had done some role playing that granted you, uh, inspiration from an ideal bond or flaw the day before, then you get nothing today if you haven't already spent it. And so, like, not, not great. Very, very, very strange. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying the inspiration rules are kind of all over the place. I think there's a lot of people that feel that they feel tacked on. And like I said, I, you know, but at the same time, I am not part of a group that is playing fifth edition for the first time. Yeah. Right. Um, except for my teenage players in my, in my one group who have me as a DM and I never use inspiration. I tried with them, but they would even forget to use it. <laughs> right. So, I mean, 
I also think that that they could have gotten a little bit more creative with what you could do with it beyond just an extra, you know, advantage on a rule. You know, like I absolutely agree. There was a there was a Dragon Magazine article back in the four E days that gave you extra things to do with an action point. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, there were things like like um, spending a healing surge. So, like, I could see, you know, why can't you spend an inspiration to to roll a hit die and and heal yourself? Yeah. For free or whatever, or cancel a critical hit on you, or or stuff like that. Yeah, Um, it's a little. It's just it's a little bit of a boring mechanic. It's just not that not that interesting as a mechanic. Um, I mean, I think I think ultimately the three of us are just very much on the same page here. Um, And I'm not like like the the conversations I'm seeing online, while they're not representative of the D and D player base, because the, the there are millions of new players all the time mm-hmm. who are not uh, my Twitter followers. And I think that's a crime. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know what they think. I, I know what, you know, a, a bunch of us old chaps think. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's not so much in favor. Uh, so I think maybe we can move on to yeah. Uh, yeah, the on. next page. So resolution and consequences is the thing I was like signposting as really like a lot of critique of D and D is about not having read this header, mm-hmm. and in fairness, about D and D not centering this header as what it's going to do. But success at a cost, you don't say, <laughs> right? Like um, this could really stand to get to get centered. It's really interesting stuff. Um, I love the idea of um, the the. Uh, Okay, so you have failed your dexterity saving throw against a fireball, uh, but the DM maybe says to you after the roll, "Hey, would you like to uh, succeed but wind up prone?" Mm-hmm. That's fine. That like that's that's totally fine. It doesn't maybe affect all characters equally, and you need to pay attention to your tactical situation or you're going to be eating a full round of attacks with advantage. Mm-hmm. Like if your action is not coming up soon, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, you might be in a bad, in, in bad shape. Um, but the other thing about uh, success at a cost that really strikes me is that it feels like um, self-dealing. If the DM gets to decide to do this for NPCs. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Like, if the DM can say, "Oh, the the bad guy uh, would fail the save, but instead falls prone," and that's not a standard thing, that feels gross to me. Uh, but then, like, uh, the the enemy's attack was going to miss you, but instead uh, it will hit, and they get disarmed. Uh, the player needs to have some choice point in there for real. But with the dexterity saving throw thing, the player even having a choice point feels weird because like they're, they're not physically engaged in that action once the fireball is out of their hand, if that makes sense. Like yeah. That's, yeah. that's not narratively meaningful, but in the flow of action in D&D that I'm used to, that would feel weird. So, yeah, I feel like three different ways about this, apparently. Hmm. 
your thoughts, please, so I don't be the only one talking. So my thought is, uh, I, I, I like this section because it presents a, a quote, new idea. Um, and then it has four very specific examples. And I have found with this DMG that when they bullet point out specific examples, that's usually where this book shines. And it's not that I agree necessarily with the examples they use or the things they put in the bullet, but the, the layout of this book sometimes is very wall of text. And as a, as a, as earlier I mentioned, it's a reference book. As a reference book, having things bulleted is a very, very good idea. And when you have examples that are specific bulleted, I'm in love with that because I feel like that they could do a lot more of that in this book, not necessarily in this chapter. They do a good job in this chapter, but in other places in this book, they don't necessarily do that good of a job of it. And this is one of those places where they do a good job because these four examples tell you exactly whether you are going to like this idea or not. Yeah. Right. So without even commenting on my personal thoughts about the particular application of success at a cost here, just reading the examples, tell me right away as a DM whether I'm going to like it or not. And if it didn't tell me, it would at least be specific examples where I would know what I was doing if I tried to use it in a game. Right. And then to find out if I like it or if my players like it. I do agree with you, Brandis, that, um, you know, there's this sort of adage that gets floated around every once in a while that uh, if you let the players do something, if you let their PCs do something, you should always, you know, turnabout's fair play or what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And you should always uh, just keep in mind that you can apply any rule or any sort of stretching or bending that you do for the PCs. You can also do for monsters. And the thing about that adage is I don't think that it should apply 100% in every situation. Yep. And that's where the advice should come in here. Yep. For you, would that feel bad? Like to, to decide, no, they, they didn't fail the role. They're going to succeed with cost on, on say, uh, uh, well, God help you. If it's a, if you make that decision on something that's like a whole person spell. I mean, a, P- a PC or a monster. So, so let's say you're the DM, you're playing your oh. monster. The PC casts whole, whole person mm-hmm. on your sufficiently humanoid monster. Mm-hmm. And I fail my save. And you fail your wisdom saving throw. Mm-hmm. And you decide to say, it, you, you fail by one or two. So you say, no, I'll succeed with a cost. I cannot think of anything that's going to make that okay because the PC is going to be invested in the paralyzed condition, tactically speaking. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting example with hold person because as a magical effect, if you fail your save, you, you know, how do you succeed with a cost? What's the cost? I'm I'm just using it as another variation on their fireball example. Right. 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 But the thing with fireball is you're running and trying to, Uh trying to get out of the way of the fireball. You can't run and get out of the way from a whole person spell. Right. Uh, but, like I, I'm not saying that I've like popped the bubble of this whole idea. That's not mm-hmm. that's not it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just um, it doesn't apply equally to everything, right? It, it doesn't. It doesn't apply. And smoothly. shouldn't. Yeah. Right. 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 For sure. No, I agree with like, that. I would. I would love to see this centered in a D and D variant design. I think it's fascinating, mm-hmm. but you would really have to have. Uh, 
absolutely no um, use cases of uh, all or nothing spells, right? Yeah. So let let me answer let me answer your question in terms of how would that feel as the DM. Uh, I could totally see letting a player who missed by one uh, decide. I would give them the choice. Okay, you can either miss or you can hit, but then you're disarmed. So you'd have to spend your movement next time trying to get to your weapon and picking it up, right? Right. That may or may not be a good or bad thing for you because who knows where the weapon went and all that stuff, right? Right. Uh, Or you'd have to do something without that weapon, right? Uh, And that's a choice the player can make it for their PC. And I think that's perfectly fine. I would not choose to just automatically, because I roll, you know, when I play in person, I roll everything out in the open. So I roll attack rolls and damage rolls out in the open. And so if I rolled and it missed by one, I wouldn't just suddenly decide, well, you know, I'm going to let the creature hit, but it's disarmed. How about that? Like, I I wouldn't do that unless I decided on the spot that that's a thing that happens to that type of creature. Right. Right. If I decide, well, skeletons, they uh, are animate undead and they don't really have a good grip on their weapons because it's just bones. And so anytime they're they're within one of a hit, they're going to actually hit instead of miss, but then they're going to drop their weapon. Sure. Like, I would have to... uh, uh, decide that that's a quality of that creature. Right. And to me, you write that's that as a trait in the stat block. Right. Yeah, that yeah. would be a trait in a stat block. And that's something different from just deciding, you know, to be more cinematic one time and let a creature hit when they actually missed on that role. But that's me personally. I mean, you know, no, I, I, I feel you. Like I, I, I find this idea fascinating and yet hard to like talk about fully implementing. I don't know. We can move on. I just, I mean, the other thing way to look at this is success at a cost is the same thing as just saying, well, okay, you're two away from being able to pick that lock. So I'm going to say you picked it anyway, but it took you 10 minutes instead of two minutes. That's the same exact thing. Right. I think what I like about what I like about this section is that it gives you an opportunity to provide the characters meaningful choices. That's absolutely true. Absolutely. Yes. And, and, and I think it, it lets you break up the monotony of combat, which can sometimes break down to just a series of die rolls and, and, and some players just do the same thing over and over again. Like I, one of my players spams his, his, his sword over and over and over again. It's not very sure. creative with it. So it gives you an opportunity to create meaningful choice moments for players, mm-hmm. but it also forces you as a DM to have to think on your feet quickly because you got to come up with some of these uh, either or situations, which can also be, it could be challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that like if you if you decide you want to center this, you just like have a deck of index cards full of yeah. ideas, and you like flip till you find one that suits, kind of thing. Right. Yeah, but but it definitely does open up the 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 choices, um, you know, the the for the players quite a bit, and and I think that's always welcome, right? Mm-hmm. But, but Enrique, if you decided to start implementing the, you know, miss by one or two, and instead you get a choice to make, would you implement that for creatures as well? If they miss by one or two, can they have a chance to hit if they take some disadvantage? I I don't know that I would do this for combat too much. Only because, only because I think, and, and I, well, based on the examples here, I guess that's what I was going to say is not necessarily true. I was going to say, I think it's more meant for like 
saving throws and abilities and whatnot, but I guess combat is really a part of this too. I I would feel weird not allowing some monsters to get an opportunity to to pull one over the players. But then you open up the door to being adversarial with the players, and I'm not into that either. Right. Well, like if you, uh, I think this uh, makes a really interesting point that maybe you take a, a page from Seventh um, C and their sense of named villains as people with more drama capacity, right? Uh, and so what you're saying is like, uh, you know, you know my, my nameless mooks will never do this to you, but uh, named or otherwise sufficiently significant big bads might get some extra like narrative side juice to kind of balance the plot armor that you both have and don't have as players. If you see what I mean, like mm-hmm. they don't really have plot armor, but they kind of have plot armor. Right. Uh, in that the volcano is probably not going to just pour down on their heads. But, and it's also sort of not going to pour down on Calarel the Vile's head either. <laughs> right. By that same token. Yeah. But all his mooks and minions. Absolutely. Oh yeah. But, uh, but also, Enrique, I think your point about like uh, going super light on this in combat, but really leaning into it on ability checks for social exploration—that's that's a very strong point. It's very, very appealing it, to me. It, it just lets you add a little bit more meat to the bones of the social and exploration. It sure does. Pillars, which again are are a bit. Lacking, and we're going to get to those soon in this section. But see, that's again where I wish they had some bullet point examples. Back in the ability check section, they could have, you know, and I know that they weren't talking about degrees of success at that time, but they could call back to that now in this section and say, okay, now, you know, with respect to the ability checks, not just within combat, but ability checks themselves, when we talked about time, there's other ways to give them a consequence but still let them succeed. It doesn't have to be just time, although time is one of the major things. Yeah. My my issue with the expiration, and I'll just say it here real quick just so you know where I'm going to go with it, is that it's missing. They chose to include a very important gra- uh, graphic in the DM screen and not in the book. Okay. Um, which one? <laughs> the um, And which DM screen? Because now there's been... The encounter distance. Oh, yeah. The encounter. Is that not in this book? Is it nowhere? Yeah. And there's an audible distance. There's an encounter distance. I don't think it's here in the DMG. Wild. So in the, yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, in the wilderness kit uh, screen. Is that in the regular screen, the reincarnated screen? Do you know? So I'm looking. I'm looking at that one now, and that one has the that one has the encounter distance. Yes. Yeah. Does it? Yeah. So. And and it has the it has the encounter distance. In fact, the encounter distance and it has the audible distance. And the visibility. The visibility outdoors. Huh. Um, thing as well. And that's not in this chapter. That is not in this chapter where it should be. Yeah. Um, that's wild. Yeah. I mean, there's there's definitely the header for visibility outdoors. Yeah. And I certainly appreciate the, the, the travel pace calculations they go ahead and do for you because mm-hmm. I can do them. I just don't want to. Right. 
Um, but yeah, that's not having a table on that is a, is an odd move. Yeah. No, no question. Um, interesting. Yeah. But uh, like you, uh, other than that, I don't really have a lot to say about this. I, I, I do actually, I wish that they talked more about how to make exploration interesting. Well, well, right. Like this is the, the section that is like the nuts and bolts right. version of what mm-hmm. we talked to, about with um, Eugenio in chapter right. five, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, where they keep it really like theory level and philosophical. The, the other thing they don't do is they don't teach you how to narrate travel scenes and, and, and overland journeys and that sort of thing, which I, which a lot of people get tripped up on that. Oh, for sure. Me. For sure, and, and and chapter five has you know a full page on that that covers two models, and like if you want to argue that's not enough, I will I will buy that argument all day long. But th- there is something. Is it on five? Hold on. Yeah, yeah it's, it's back in chapter five. Yeah, it starts on page one hundred six. Uh, I I wish that they would call back to it because it's really funny because several chapters call forward to chapter eight. Yeah. Oh yes, and chapter yeah. eight doesn't call back to any other chapter. What a mess. It calls back to the PHB yeah, and it doesn't call back to any other chapter. So that's, that's partly where this being used as a reference book is, is not ideal. Right. Yeah. I wanted to touch on the tracking section because I thought it was interesting to see one of the extremely few cases of that exact kind of DC breakdown mm-hmm. that I just finished right. saying this doesn't have, um, egg on my face. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it, it calls back to mind the much, much more intensive tracking charts of um, the, the first ed uh, DMG, the second ed DMG, the third ed DMG of all of these plus one, minus one, plus two, minus two, or plus 5%, minus 5% in, in first ed uh, charts, right? And, I mean, this is this this table has five line items. Uh, one of those line items, uh, two of those are plus five, minus five. Okay. They're keeping it r- real bare bones here. Well, so how does this interlace with the ranger problem that we talked about earlier? It at least tells you how, like, what the situation is, uh, as opposed to like, if you're just reading the ranger class, you have very little to, go on mm-hmm. um, mechanically speaking yeah. mechanically speaking as to is this feature any good like is advantage helping enough um, I mean it I don't know uh, it, it almost feels to me like um, for that one skill keeping the combat tables in the DMG you know in, in that first ed way mm-hmm. of we're going to tell you you can do this thing and then tell you nothing about how it goes we're not going to tell you the process at all. And, I mean, I'm not in love with that. And it's going to be in this really obscure section on page 244. In, right. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks for that. Uh, like, it'd be a pain in, the, pain in the butt rules block to put into, like, Ranger or Chapter 7 of the Player's Handbook. But at the same time, it's bad not having it. You take this and you take other things that they do, like introduce certain rules and adventures. 
So for example, I'm looking at this tracking section and I'm also thinking about the navigation section in Tomb of Annihilation. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and I'm thinking, well, why does one belong in an adventure and one belong in the DMG? Like, like the navigation section in Tomb of Annihilation, regardless of the fact that it's set in Cholt, whatever, but th- those rules could apply to anywhere else, right? Right. Though, though I can at least appreciate, like, we're going to give you the the denser rules when you need them, and that rules module is just turned off the rest of the time. I think that's plausible, if not maybe everyone's ideal. I think it's a strategy with their publications of of adventure modules, right? That they they have some extra rules in every adventure module after what Storm King's Thunder. Mm-hmm. I think everyone has had like a major rules module in it. You know, Salt Marsh had undersea and ship rules. Uh, Avernus had vehicles. Uh, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like the, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, Prime yeah. has weather related stuff. I mean, Ghost of Salt Marsh is the, the the real standout there. Right. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Tomb of Annihilation has the exploration rules, the hex crawl rules. You know. So I think I, you know, I at first when they started doing that, I actually I. I complained like in my head i i don't remember if i I probably complained on the podcast too but i for me i was like well i don't want to have to buy every adventure every 50 dollar 320 page adventure just to get 30 the 30 pages of rules in the back right they aren't all 320 pages they're all 50 dollars though but you get the idea right even if it's only 200 pages and then plus 20 pages of creatures and a 30 page gazetteer of some place right and then 20 pages of new rules or you know like but Actually, I've come around on that, and I think you know it's a fairly decent strategy. It's better than producing standalone setting books and standalone short adventures and standalone little tiny rules modules, right? I mean, we do get some standalone quote unquote standalone rules modules in Xanathar's and Tasha's, right? Like the which is basically DMG two and three, right? But but it's a different kind, it, you know. So anyway, we're getting way off on a tangent. Let's move on. <laughs> All right, so that brings us to social interaction, which uh, I believe that both of you gentlemen have strong views on. Yes, Enrique. Well, my, my so my view on social interactions is that this section, for being such a strong quote unquote pillar of the game, is is a very weak pillar. And in fact, the, the social interaction section, I think I even wrote a blog post about it because I was so so upset by it. So the way the rules work here, and, and there's a lot of rules here. I mean, look at the, look at the resolving interaction sections. It has one, two, three, four, four headings here of rules. It never interacts with the stat block of the creature you are trying to interact with. It, the, the creature you're in, in, so if I'm talking to an NPC, if I'm dealing with a hobgoblin king or whatever, the hobgoblin king stat block is completely irrelevant to these rules. And the Hobgoblin is a passive creature in these rules. Mm-hmm. And the DM the DM just decides the Hobgoblin King is hostile or impartial. That's it. That's it. Nothing, no, no charisma score from the Hobgoblin, no, no intimidation skill that the Hobgoblin might have in his stat block comes into play. There, there is nothing in the Hobgoblin's mechanics that influence this section of the game in any meaningful way, in any way, really. Forget meaningful, just in any way. And to me, that is such a weird and 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 
and bizarre design choice that I really don't understand. It, it feels like two things were written completely separate from each other, the stat blocks and this. And it calls back to chapter eight in the player's handbook, which I'm opening up right now because I want to see what it says. Uh, it says chapter eight adventuring has uh, guidelines for balancing role playing and ability checks in a social interaction. Uh, it, those guidelines are weaker than what's in here. Listen to me. Listen, a bone devil has a plus seven deception. A gladiator NPC has a plus five intimidation. A mind flare has a plus six persuasion. None of those scores are relevant to this section. That is a fair point. I, I will say that the, the kind of uh, interaction stat block that I've written before uh, doesn't engage with numbers to speak of, and it's just uh, traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws for the NPC. Uh, and, and, and maybe their starting attitude. So why give those monsters? So why should those monsters have those those scores to begin with? No, I I'm not arguing with you. I, I agree. And and the issue is that and and basically what it comes down to, what what Enrique's comment comes down to is in part three the step three the charisma check is against a static DC that's not modified at all, not might have modified at all by anything related to the actual individual NPC or creature. Nothing. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. kind of wild. That is insane. I mean, it's completely, completely independent of, of, of the monster mechanic in the game. I'm trying to remember if that was actually different in Third Ed. Uh, I, I, I guess we're going to be talking about this some other day. Was I go hunt that down and <laughs> like how, how how did this make it? How did this make it f- through the playtest? Uh, well. Part of that answer is going to be something like a lot of playtest groups um, don't really believe in highly mechanized uh, social interaction scenes. Like, I'm very not sure if I like highly mechanized social interaction scenes on any given day, and the importance of dice at all in social interactions is very much a toss-up in games I run. Yes and no. So, so here's let, let me let me let me reframe this for you though. This section is for PCs talking to NPCs, not necessarily. So uh, this is going to sound weird. There's morale rules, optional morale rules for determining the attitude and behavior of a creature, right? Of a monster. These rules are meant to interface with a creature that's already parlaying with the PCs. And this is one of the reasons, Enrique, why your example of the Hobgoblin King is so salient, because it highlights the whole in that framework, Because even this section talks about determining characteristics. The adventurers don't necessarily enter into a social interaction with a full understanding of a creature's ideal bond or flaw. In other words, their motivation. If they want to shift a creature's attitude by playing on these characteristics, they first need to determine what the creature cares about. They can guess, but doing so runs the risk of shifting the creature's attitude in the wrong direction if they guess badly. That's assuming that you have made your NPCs with ideals, bonds, and flaws, 
or assuming that you're understandable, you understand the, how this works enough to just say, okay, well, the motivation, right? I'm going to let them play on the motivation of that. I, my skeletons and mind flayers and and uh, generic hobgoblins are not going to have those things, right? Because they're not necessarily going to be parlaying. A courtly, you know, duke is going to be parlaying and... Right. And so I think that's the framework that these were written with. But as you have pointed out so deftly, just with your example, and see, again, that's why I love examples, right? Is that it, this doesn't work with a Hobgoblin King because it does not intersect at all with anything that's in the Hobgoblin King's stat block or history. Nothing. And, and they went back in Tasha's and they added a section parlaying with monsters. Where they could have, where they could have fixed this hole that's in the rules, and they made it worse. <laughs> <laughs> they made it worse. If you go to page one forty-eight in Tasha's, they actually give you a chart for each monster type, and what they would like, what they would take from you, uh, on a, on a roll of a d four, like what you know, a, an offering you could give them, um, to try to calm them or whatever. Uh, but it doesn't even, again, it doesn't interact with their stat block at all. It doesn't take into account who they are. It just takes, you know, oh, giants. Every single giant would like a strong working animal. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Celestials yeah. will uh, desire a tale of a heroic figure. It, it's ridiculous. It's so, and, and, and you're going to tell me that the game has three pillars and this is how you're going to treat the social interaction pillar. I don't buy it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, like I, I've been running, I've had a bunch of sessions in a row across different campaigns that were uh, incredibly social focused, and uh, let me tell you, not a lot of dice got dropped. But but here's here's the here's here's my issue with something you said earlier, Brandis. Yeah. About about social interaction being a little bit free form and a little bit um, not relying on dice. You are rewarding players who are outgoing, who are. Um, prone to role playing and and who are not introverted by that and you need to give a, you need to provide a framework to players who are not as comfortable role playing or are so quick on their feet should still be able to succeed so so, so with, with with all the love and respect for that situation in the world it is not a use case that i face in my gaming groups like the the, the introverted players that i have telling them to roll dice will not help them and I'm really very sure of that. I, like I have considered this problem in in my groups. Uh, for the rules, the rules do need to have something for this. For my group specifically, I have tailored no. the situation to what I need. No, I get it. I get it. But the, but but the book isn't written for Brandis's players. No, no, no. I, I agree. I agree. I I, I hear you. Um, I, I'm talking about why they why they uh, missed it in playtesting, no. not why it should or shouldn't be here. So, so here's the thing here was, this was going to be my comment about this section and Enrique kind of tangentially touched on it. And it is this fact that if, if players, okay, look, I know that many players that play this game barely read the player's handbook, let alone the DMG. Okay. They're not reading the DMG players aren't even I'm not even talking about DMs. Some DMs don't read it. Some do whatever. I'm, that's not a comment on the game or anything, but most players I would say that are not interested in being a DM at all, probably have not read the DMG, which means they have certainly not read this section. 
which means they don't have an idea about how they could actually mechanically manipulate the situation when their PC is involved in a social interaction. And so when I read this earlier today when I was prepping for this podcast, um, I thought to myself, I really want my players to read this section because it would give them a framework for how they could learn more information that's something other than, I want to do an insight check because I want to know if I believe the guy. Yeah. Right? And this is definitely not that. So I think this is more middle of the road. It's definitely better than just saying, hey, roll an insight check and then try to role play. But it's not as good as what it could be for the reasons that Enrique stated, which is it doesn't inter, inter, interact at all with any kind of stat block. And, you know, this is D&D. We thrive on stat blocks, okay? As much as, you know, it's we're talking about social interaction, but why can't you integrate the use of a stat block into how things socially interact with other things in the world? I mean, if I were looking at this, if I were looking at this chart right now, I could tell you right now that the, the hostile creatures reactions DC I'm at least going to add uh, one of those bonuses. Like the Mind Flayer's Persuasion is certainly going to affect this DC. Oh, yeah. Um, For sure. You know. Yep. I yep, agree with that. And the thing is, it doesn't even suggest that, right? No, it doesn't. It, it, it ignores it ignores everything about the monster. To me, it's it's incredible how it did that. I, I just don't, don't, don't get it. I don't get it. it. It's it's one of the biggest fails to me of, of this this book how how that that pillar is just completely ignored um the other thing that i i, I think like your points are, are completely valid right no no argument the other thing that i think is striking here is that i don't believe there's any discussion of the fact that you probably cannot expect to have npcs roll dice to change PC's minds. Mm-hmm. No, like for, for the overwhelming supermajority of uh, of tables, it is not at all acceptable to have the DM say you have been successfully intimidated with this check, or you have been successfully deceived with this check. God help you, persuaded with this check, right? And I'm never going to quite be okay with that moment of outright rejecting the what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I know why it's there. I really do. Uh, it's always going to have, it could be kind of a burr of discomfort for me, though, to, to say that um, the GM has to be the most socially capable person in the party for any of those things to happen. They have to actually get one over on the player, not on the character, on the player or the player has to uh, leave actor stance and move into author stance and be willing to like have the bad thing happen they have to fully volunteer for it the, neither of those are are great fits for D&D D&D doesn't talk about actor stance and author stance no but I think there's ways where you can phrase something so 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 if the goblin king the hobgoblin king intimidates a player I may not tell the player oh you're intimidated by the hobgoblin king but I may tell him uh, as the hobgoblin king speaks to you 
uh, you could tell that in his tone of voice, he means what he says and his size and his, you know, and, and, and his, his physical presence um, indicates that he may indeed get a, get a, you know, uh, be more powerful than you if, if, if come, you know, I may find a clever way to, to, to disguise the fact that this guy is, you know, trying to intimidate you and, and, and you should definitely feel something from this guy. Yeah. So, so serious question about your style because we never played together. So like, uh, to what extent would you let that, uh, description be a fabrication? Like, okay, he's a, He's a CR, let's say five, uh, a, a hobgoblin war chief, and y- your PCs are CR seven, are, are seventh level characters. Like, yeah, they can definitely stomp him, but he's he's rolled really well on intimidation. Is he allowed to put one over on them and let that influence your description or no? I, I think you could. Des- I think I, I would describe the hobgoblin at least that in his mind. He certainly thinks he is more powerful than you. Okay, okay. cool. You know, cool. Uh, I, I would never tell a player you 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 have to act this way because no, no, I, I agree. Like it isn't magical mind control. Yeah, and and yeah. we all agree with that deeply, fundamentally. But um, but there are ways to say that the at least the hobgoblin believes in his heart that he is more powerful and he could probably take you. Now, whether he does or not is up, you know, that's that's up to you and the dice. Yeah. But he's but he's not going to back away from you. He's not scared of you. That's for sure. Right. His confidence is intact. Right. right. Like right. he he feels like he has intimidated you. Yes. Because his confidence is fully intact. Whereas, you you know, you may not you you as a player and your PC's reaction may not actually be that of an intimidated creature per the way we envision an intimidated creature when the PC intimidates somebody. Right. But yeah, you can, you can maybe get that point across. The problem is that it doesn't give any advice about that. And it doesn't, it doesn't doesn't give examples of, you know, how to, how to have a, a, a nice resolution it, to that that mechanic that actually imparts the information that needs to be imparted about the disposition of that particular person they're parlaying with. It, it leads me to ask two questions. The first one is, why do these monsters have those numbers in their stat block to begin with? And what's mm-hmm. the context? How do you use them? And then, and I'm talking specifically about the social ones, obviously. I'm not mm-hmm. talking about the, the, the combat-geared ones. Mm-hmm. And then, two, we're not even talking about how all this interacts with the morale rule on page 273 in Chapter 8. <laughs> right. Well, and that's why I said the morale rule. The other thing yeah. is you're talking about um, the Mind Flayer and everything with their ability to persuade. Think about something that has a high intimidation. If a creature has a high intimidation, they should not be easy to intimidate themselves. Right. Correct. So you should be able to use that on that table as well to modify that, those tables. But it doesn't. But it doesn't tell you how to do it. It doesn't tell you how to do that exactly. And even even if you were able to take these, take the numbers of the conversation reaction table fully at face value, uh, they now have to go out the door because they've created a, a bard, the eloquence bard in Theros and Tasha's, that can't fail to hit a twenty. Right, so so I've got an uh, eloquence bard in um, in my birthright game, and so he's got the feature where rolls below ten are treated as ten, 
and he's got expertise in persuasion, and he's got a high charisma. Well, but a, but a, but a twenty is not cool. an automatic success. So, no, well, it, it's just uh, the 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 twenty result that is as high as this table goes. He can't roll below a twenty-two. His minimum result is a twenty-two. Oh, I see what you mean. Only if the table gave you a, a way to modify these numbers would it make a difference. But right, that's, that's what I'm getting right, at. Right, right, sure. right, right. And, and obviously, I can, I can do that legwork on my own, right? I, I, I have I, – I'm, I'm a human operator, not a computer. Right, but hold on. But you can do it, and I can do it, and Enrique for sure can do it because we've been talking about it for 10 minutes. But can a new DM do it? Right. Can a new DM automatically take – the stat block and the history of the creature as presented in the monster manual and directly apply that to this in a way that makes sense without expending a crap ton of energy. I posit the answer is no. No, I, I, I agree. Well, well right. I wouldn't even be opening this section because now I know it wouldn't help me. Right. Yeah. Right. And so it's not going to help the, the, the new DM either if they're expecting to have their eloquence bard shine and have tense rolls, not just everything the eloquence bard wants they get because they can't fail a roll. Mm-hmm. Now it does let you, it does let you modify the role using the characters, persuasion, deception, or intimidation. Right. Sure. Mm-hmm. So they can modify their role, but you can't modify the DC in any meaningful way based on the monsters. That, 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 <laughs> I keep reading yeah. that, and I'm like, man, this is just, it feels like the intern wrote this. You know? That's rough. That's rough. And the thing is, it could be fixed with like three sentences, right? Mm-hmm. Any creature with a bonus to their intimidation, you add that to the DC. Any creature with a bonus to their persuasion, you add it to the DC. Yeah. Any, any creature with a charisma bonus you add it to the DC, right? It's easy to do that. Or, or why didn't they make it in a post roll? A post rolls are a thing in the game. Yeah, yeah. You know? Why did they come up with this chart with three DCs, zero tenant, a zero DC? Well, that's the thing though, right? They came up well, with this whole well, chart I mean, in this that's whole the section. Fail state, right? and, and it's talking it's talking about all this stuff when, when they could have actually created a slightly more elegant situation and in and tied it right to the opposed roles right well and and as they move to creating a more elegant situation that step four repeat yeah is (laughs) that's actually the really risky part because now you're a breath away from needing full-on fourth edition style skill challenge rules right it's all. It's the. It's it's a very important paragraph, and it's only a paragraph. Like, uh, how do you get to a a lasting fail state with this situation? Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, uh, I do like the the role playing tips that follow. I yeah, think that the, is really solid stuff for new players or yeah, for new all, DMs. All that stuff is really good advice. I mean, I, I, look this this chapter. So, I, just as a as a final closing thought kind of thing, this chapter is full of so many nitty gritty things, and it is a must read chapter. Even if you don't implement any of the stuff in this chapter, this is a must read chapter because it gives the reader 
insight into how the different elements of the game can interact or maybe not interact with each other and how you can fiddle with things without actually destroying the game. And I think that's good information for any level DM. I think it also gives you insights into how they expect the game to be played. Oh yeah, absolutely. With a little, with starting, with starting things becoming optional rules and mm-hmm. or not and that sort of thing. Like I still, I insist that this game was written with a five foot grid under the hood, whether they want to admit it or not. <laughs> right. I, I think it was. Well, I think they had the five foot grid in mind and they were actively trying to write the rules in a way that did not absolutely require it, but easily you can see it sitting there. Yeah. And I think that's okay. Cause I think that part of, I think they surmised that part of the issue uh, with fourth edition is that it's so tactically heavy that it creates problems for a certain portion of the fan base yep. and, or a f- portion of people that would become fans, but did not because of the grid and the tactical nature of fourth edition. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I'm I'm exhausted. That was a good chat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's been it's been a great pleasure talking to you, Enrique. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on and I'm looking Likewise, forward to guys. coming back and uh finishing this bad boy up because this is a beast of a chapter, but boy, uh we have opinions on it and it's great. Um We do. Thank you for thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. I, I, I love Love talking to stuff. Please tell our uh, listeners where they can find you on the internet, Enrique. You can find me at <laughs> you can find me at Twitter at NubiDM. You can find me on my website NubiDM.com. and I've recently started a YouTube channel, um, youtubecom slash NubiDM. Uh, where I hope to, I, I recently started a new show called the Newbie DM Show, and, and I, it's going to be kind of a kitchen sink type show. Um, as of this recording, I only have one episode on there. I did an interview with Ed Greenwood and Jeff Grubb. Oh, nice. Um, nice. It, it, it was a really nice interview. I had a really nice time talking to those guys. Um, and if you get a chance, go check it out. And um, then I also have a Twitch channel at Newbie DM, also where I, every now and then, I hop on there and I do some show off some world 20 stuff or, you know, random, random D and D related things. Uh, all this is kind of new to me. So I, they're just getting started. So I hope to build up on them and, and oh, see you find a new way to be a newbie. Excellent work. Found in- <laughs> <laughs> uh, we definitely want to have that in the show notes. So for sure. Thank you for that. And, and you guys should go check out the interview. It's, it's really a lot of fun. Um, Jeff Grubb is one of those guys that I don't think he gets enough credit for, for the amount of stuff he added to D and D. Yes. Yeah. All right, Sam, where can folks find you? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel. You can find me on the internet at my website at uh, rpgmusings.com. And you can find me all over the Tome show. Brandis. You can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. I write for tribality.com. My personal blog is brandisstoddard.com and my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. Excellent. Well, I think that is going to take us out of here. Brandis, do you have a sign-off you would like to uh, say tonight? Yeah. 
if you can get vaccinated against COVID, please get vaccinated. I I don't like this Delta variant thing. It sounds like it comes from like a, a Cthulhu-based tabletop game, and I don't want that in my lungs. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, even if you are vaccinated, it's always a good idea to still wear your mask if possible, especially if you have loved ones around you who are immunocompromised. Absolutely. And wash your hands, you filthy Yes, pigs. wash your hands, you dirty <laughs> <laughs>